0: Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 38, and from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles, in the Pew Bibles in front of you, or you may listen along as I read. These different passages to you so Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 they devoted themselves to the Apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the Apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father, and slaves honor their master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask. How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 38. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar full of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Finally, from the Epistle of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Jesus Christ had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks
1: be to God. God. You know, some of you may have heard me share the story before of how Julie and I traveled to Europe for the very first time together a couple of years back. And on that trip, uh, we had the opportunity to visit La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, the uh, cathedral designed by the renowned architect, Antony Gaudi. Now, Gaudi had uh, planned this cathedral to give glory to God, to highlight, using lots of vibrant colors and highlighted by uh, the architectural design. But he also designed these high lofts throughout the sanctuary so that multiple choirs could fill the cathedral with uh, the sound of voices. The bell towers were designed so that the, the sound of the bells could ring from that church throughout the city. Now, as Julie and I were there, we admired the beauty of that place, so much so that we were moved uh, you know, in, our, in the depths of our hearts. We admired Gaudi's vision and skill, but even more, we were moved by his heart of worship. Many of the shapes and designs that he used in the building were Gaudi's way of paying homage to God as the grand and original architect of creation. In many ways, Gaudi's work and life demonstrates a life of worship, but but they also evoke worship from all who encounter his work. As Jerry mentioned to us through these few weeks in the We Are WCF sermon series, we are looking at each of the statements uh, that c- communicate our identity. Vibrant worship, authentic community, personal transformation, and social impact. Now, while many of us, will, ha- uh, well, no, very few of us, will have the kind of vision and skill and impact like Gaudi, it strikes me that his desire to glorify God in his life and in his work is perhaps one, of, one example of what vibrant worship might look like for us today. So as we walk through the text that Ana Laura read for us, I hope that we can see how Scripture informs the vibrant worship that we hope to nurture here at WCF and though it should include them, vibrant worship is more than just a descriptor of these outer forms of worship. Instead, what we see in Scripture is that vibrant worship can be characterized by three things. Today, the sponsored by the letter P. The posture, the, who it's pleasing to, and a person. Posture, pleasing, and person. The, 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 the trifecta of sermon outline points. Now, when you think of the word vibrant, what comes to mind for you? For me, the word conjures up color and richness and glorious uh, attractiveness. You know, vibrant things capture your attention and encourage you to spend time looking upon them. But vibrancy isn't always something that is external. Have you ever met someone who, is, is vi- who exudes joy um, from the very center and, and love and and flourishing from the center of their being, but they're not exactly the most loudest personalities? I can think of a few people like that. I think that person can be quiet in demeanor, yet incredibly vibrant. I think that the same can be said about Christian worship. I spent some times, you know, in my formative years as a teenager and young adult in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, you know, where vibrant worship was equaled Loud and long music with banner, bright and colorful banners, and people dancing. For some, ex- outwardly expressive worship is more vibrant, but this is an incomplete assumption. And some of you might respond, well, amen. You know, quiet and unassuming worship is where it's at. I think we're a bit more like that in this church, right? I'm trying to get you to clap during worship. When we say lift up our hands, it's not just a mental thing, right? That's old no other plan. But, you know, for some, acoustic worship and singing a cappella hymns and not using lighting and amplification isn't necessarily more spiritual either. We should be open to vibrant worship that is both loud and quiet. One is not better than the other. Vibrancy doesn't necessarily come from these external, from an external posture, but an internal one. Recall the story of Gaudi that I started out with today. Despite his incredible architectural vision to build this cathedral, where work began on it in 1882 and is still being completed to this day, Gaudi lived a life following the spiritual discipline of simplicity. When Gaudi died after being run over by a tram just a few blocks away from the cathedral, people thought that he was a beggar. You see, in the final 12 years of his life, Gaudi dedicated his life to three things only. To prayer, to fasting, and to building this cathedral. Three things. So he, he, As such, he lived in such a simple life that the wallpaper in his house was peeling. He had pins holding together his, the, the, his clothes. And because he adopted this Catholic veneration of poverty, now, I'm not saying that worship of God demands us to live like that. That's how he chose to do it. But what we're trying to say is that worship isn't just about what we do. It's about how we live. The term worship derives from the English term "worthship," giving worth to something, bringing acknowledgement to something, or giving attention to something. And in pop culture, worship, idol worship, is bringing attention to those people in your life that you want to focus your attention on. You share them on social media. You share their latest songs or their latest movies. That's one understanding of worship. And in Scripture, we find that the words that are translated as worship in the English language come from the Greek word in the New Testament, proskuneo, which means to bow down towards, or in the Hebrew word, shakah, which also means to bow down towards God, as is illustrated in this Psalm 96. These words uh, can be translated either as to bow down or as to worship, depending on the context in which they are used. So based on Scripture and the way Scripture uses worship, worship can be described with three characteristics. One is humility. Worship is fundamentally about humbling ourselves before this awesome God. Humbling not only our knees physically, but humbling our hearts and our attitudes before God. C.S. Lewis once said that pride is the complete up is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the opposite of humility. Humility is the antidote to this kind of pride. This anti-God pride saying I can do it myself. I've got it all figured out. This is who I am. If we are to worship God properly, we must begin with humility. Secondly, worship in Scripture is characterized by submission. Worship is about submitting ourselves to the the goals and purposes of our king and leader, Jesus. Bowing down before our king is a recognition, one of his superiority, but also of his right to call the shots in our lives, and our responsibility to obey. And lastly, worship in Scripture, we find, is not just a mental internal thing, but it's a physical response. It involves clapping and shouting and singing and and dancing and, and demonstrating that what our bodies do is connected to our hearts. Our bodies and our hearts are deeply interconnected. So when I physically bow down or when I lift up my hands in worship, it reminds me and helps my heart to submit to God. You know, understood this way, worship goes beyond musical style and preference. We humble and submit ourselves and physically respond to many things in our lives. But are those responses really worship of God? Because we can worship our possessions by bending all of our priorities around the things we want to buy or the things we want to do. How much time do we spend online shopping compared to our spiritual practices? Whether they are political or academic or gender or um, uh, our social roles, we can also worship our identities. We can place them above our identity in Christ. And we can even worship good things in our world. We can worship family or being a good parent, or being wise with our finances, or we can worship personal freedom. We can bow down to those things before we really bow down to God. Worship is not merely an action, but it's this posture before God. In Acts chapter 2, we, are given, we aren't given descriptions of a worship style or a liturgy. But we do know that whatever, whenever that the church gathered, they heard the apostles' teaching, they prayed, and they fasted, and they broke bread together. And as a result, we're told that number uh, people heard the gospel when they came into their midst, and lives were changed, and people were adding to their number every single day. You know, one significant fruit of faithful and vibrant worship is that others recognize god's work and are welcomed and and recognize god's presence in god's people so perhaps you know you know if you've been around the church a while you've heard these terms called worship wars between christian churches which is more faithful worship but look at the fruit of worship is probably helping is more more helpful than looking at the form of worship how are people getting connected to god how are lives being changed to be more like jesus you know that's why here at wcf we uh you know we characterize ourselves as a, um, a multi-denominational denominational expression of our faith we want to welcome the different liturgies and styles and expressions that each of you bring into our faith community so when we gather from sunday to sunday we want to welcome vibrant worship that is expansive in the ways that our worship is expressed in songs in styles and in words and in prayers and in liturgies. We want to draw from the best of the Christian tradition throughout the ages, not just what we grew up on. But we especially hope to worship in ways that draw others into relationship with the living God. God is meant to be the object of a worship, which leads us to this next point. Pleasing. An important question to ask ourselves and to ask one another is, to whom might be our worship, our vibrant worship, be pleasing? The Malachi text that Anna Laura read for us seems kind of obscure. You may be like, well, what does this have to do with worship? But God questions the Israelites and specifically the priests who lead them for their worship that was uh, what is unacceptable or not pleasing to the governor, let alone to the living God. What does Malachi say there? You know, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You know, our worship is a reflection of what we love. He indicts, God indicts the Israelites for not honoring God in their worship. And Malachi particularly admonishes the priests of Israel because it's their responsibility to guard the sanctuary from defilement and to inspect the sacrifices to prevent, prevent the offering of blind, lame, or sickly animals as worship to God. Now, for whatever reason, due to their desire uh, for convenience, maybe they were just lazy, or maybe they simply just did not revere who God is and what God said. They had allowed inappropriate worship that was not pleasing to God to come into the sanctuary. They were giving God their leftovers. We don't do, we don't have to, thankfully none of us have to bring these kinds of things because of what Jesus has done for us. But I think the posture and the attitude remains the same. In verse 10, what does Malachi say? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. There, is, there are times when we might not please the Lord with our worship. How often do we find it easy to give God our leftovers and go through the motions because it is convenient for us? And certainly during these pandemic times, things have changed in the way we gather, in the way that we worship, in the way that we serve God. The Malachi text invites us to consider that the ways that maybe some of the ways that we bring that might be insufficient worship before God because they are blemished sacrifices or useless fires using Malachi's language in verse 10. It may be pleasing to us because it's convenient but it's not necessarily pleasing to God. By not choosing to give our best to God, the Malachi text illustrates how God considers it to be despising to his name. You're not really worshiping God. Now, you might be thinking, Andrew, you're going all fundy on me. This sounds fundamentalist. I'm preaching to myself just as much as to everyone here. Even as I was preparing this message this week, every time I hit a slight road bump in my you know, work process, it was so tempting to hit command tab on my computer to swap to my email inbox to check my email. I'd pick up my phone, say, oh, what kind of notifications are there that I have to clear? Then i swap my tab in my browser, check my bank account to see what bills I haven't paid yet. Then I'd get up to stretch and think about how sore I was from working in the yard and going rock climbing the day before. Andrew, is this giving God leftovers or is this giving God the best? Is this pleasing to me or is this pleasing to God? You know, the leaders in Malachi, who should have known better, didn't exemplify pleasing worship. 400 years later, we find that things don't seem to have changed much. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus is sitting with other Jewish leaders for a meal, and they still haven't gotten it. They haven't gotten what pleasing worship looks like. The leaders were hoping to get some credit for, with this up-and-coming rabbi for their righteous, worshipful lives. But we find that Jesus acknowledges the worship not of those who are in, and the men who are in power. In Scripture, the worship her here is referred only to as a woman who lived in that town, uh, in that town who lived a sinful life. Maybe in social media terms, the Pharisees have got, you know, some YouTube subscribers. They're trying to bump their channel. And so they invite Jesus over and they want to do a collab with him and they want him to do a a shout out to, to their channel. And so they invite him over for dinner. But instead, he doesn't shout them out. He tweets about this no-name person who doesn't even have a social media account. Why? Because she humbly comes to wash Jesus' feet with tears of conviction and with tears of joy in being seen, in being welcomed, and being forgiven by Jesus, her master. She recognized Jesus for who he was. And so she breaks open this alabaster jar of ointment worth one year's wages can you think of your annual wage and what it would look like to sacrifice that to God? This type of ointment was meant to be used at your own burial, but she says, "That's not, uh, this is worth way more than that. She demonstrated an extravagant and costly worship. Her actions spoke louder than her reputation. Her actions spoke louder than her reputation. But the pleasing nature of the act of of worship didn't come from the value of her gift, but it came from her humility. It came from her gratitude and her recognition of God's forgiveness offered to her. That her story isn't what defined her, but God's story does. She recognized her need and welcomed the forgiveness of Jesus, her master. Her worship was pleasing because it was directed it, the worship was directed to the only being in the universe that is deserving of worship, and that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that leads us to our final point. Worship that is vibrant, worship that is pleasing, is such when it is directed toward the person of Jesus. Now, you might be sitting here today and say, well, yeah, I came to church today. Tell me something I don't know. Of course, worship is about Jesus. Tell me something I don't know already. The question is, why is vibrant uh, worship about Jesus? And for some of us who have been around the church long enough, you might answer, well, because he loved the world so much that he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And others of us might say, well, because Jesus leads me into this flourishing life and helps me become the best version of myself, that's why I worship Jesus. Or maybe We might say, just like the song we sang, reckless love. You know, because Jesus came and found me, he never gave up on me, he sees me and loves me as I am, and I feel just so moved that someone that God would love me like that. And still others of us have just recognized how God has blessed us and healed us and provided for us in miraculous ways. So we say, why can't we, why wouldn't we worship God? Now I'm not slamming all these reasons for worshiping God. They are completely valid reasons and truthful and good reasons to worship Jesus. But in all of these examples, have you noticed something? Worship is a response to what God has given to me first. Worship of God sometimes can start with us and what we get out of it. But take a look at the Philippians passage where the author, Paul, highlights the preeminence of Jesus. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason we worship Jesus isn't only as a response to what we get out of God. Because if that were really true, worshiping Jesus essentially is about worshiping ourselves. The reason we worship him is because God exalts Jesus first. It's God who exalted Jesus to the highest place. God gave Jesus the name that is above every other name. God places Jesus as the alpha of worship in the universe so that every single knee would bow To Jesus and to Jesus alone. Every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord and leader over the universe. Every knee, every tongue. Worship of Jesus pleases God because it's what all creation is designed for the universe is designed for and is groaning towards this worship of Jesus and in the life to come when Jesus shows up for the world to see in all of his glory every knee will bow to him every knee will either bow to him in joy as the welcome master or king and king or they will bow to him in conviction as the unwelcome master and king in our lives worship of Jesus begins with God and ends with God, and we are invited into that. Before the world began, the three persons of the Trinity existed for mutual exaltation of one another. And because of great, God's great love, God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. God gave the Holy Spirit so that humanity might be reawakened to the reality of God before the beginning of the world and before you and I ever were created, God knew that we were coming and that we would need a Savior and a Master to order our lives the way that God intended for us to live, despite our failure to recognize God, despite our failure to trust God fully. That's why we need Jesus, and that's why Jesus went to the cross. In other words, vibrant worship My point here is that vibrant worship existed before all of us ever did. Vibrant worship was happening at the center of the universe before the universe came into being. And our truly vibrant worship welcomes the world into that vibrant worship that was happening, that the living God is living out. That's what makes worship of Jesus vibrant. And that's the kind of worship that we hope to embody and model and to invite others into here at WCF. We hope our worship reflects the beautiful diversity of the life to come with all peoples and all cultures and all demographics and styles as you enter, as as people enter into community with us. We're not saying that we're the only church, but this is what we long to embody here at WCF. We don't have it perfect, but we invite everyone into that life of vibrant worship. And we hope that our posture of worship will be pleasing to the only person that it matters to in the universe. May it be so. To God's glory and for our joy. Amen.